Well, let's, we're going to pick up where we left off. If you remember, we've kind of been in, we've been in this series for a year. We've got about two weeks left of it. And then we're going to talk about the Feast of Israel and going through all the significance of that and how prophetic it is. But the whole overview of everything here has been finding Christ in the Old Testament because it is all about Him. And so a few weeks ago, we talked about Ezra and the story of Ezra and everything like that. Then we just finished up Esther who's sandwiched right in there with Ezra, and in between chapter 7 and 8, I believe, is the story of Esther. And then, of course, after that, you get into Nehemiah, and Nehemiah has a very distinct theme, a theme that um, is, is it's really hard to miss, and I, I found a little video, I think, that will maybe help you guys really grasp what the entire theme of, of the book of Nehemiah is. Some of you are going to love this, some of you maybe not so much but we all love Jesus, right? Hit it, guy. Every time President Trump says build a wall, a Republican gets his wings. So, No, I, if, if you can't pick up on what the theme of the book of Nehemiah is, it's about building the wall, building the wall around Jerusalem. I'm sorry if you didn't like that video. I, I just, it just cracked me up, so I, I couldn't resist. But. So let's get into perspective here of what is going on as we go forward with this, because we are over a thousand years after the time of Moses. Okay? Remember, the time of Moses is a time that they always go back, at, back to, the fleeing of Egypt, all of that. We're 400 years before the we're coming into that segment of, they say, you know, the, the gap basically in time where there's nothing written, the silent years. We're coming up upon that. And going back, remember, Babylon conquered Jerusalem, and eventually they will completely destroy the temple. There was three exiles from there, and then eventually they do that. The Jews get deported for 70 years. They get taken into the Babylonian captivity. The reason for that is what was because they did not keep the commandments of God. This would have never happened because they did not honor the land Sabbath, that every seventh year they had to allow it to rest. And so there were 70 times that they failed to do that. Therefore, the exile was for 70 years. Jerusalem is basically a ghost town at that point. There's nothing there because everything has been destroyed. And so the Jews begin to make homes for themselves in Babylon, in the Persian territory and all of this other regions here, they get kind of comfortable. Now, many of them still followed Yahweh and still kept his commands, but they just were not in Jerusalem to do it. With no temple, there can be no sacrifice. You know, I've been asked before is that there is no temple. Why don't they just set up the tabernacle? Right? Kind of seems logical. The problem is, is that the temple, once it was built, there is no going back. So it's do or die. There's, it's, it's all in or nothing. And so some of these people that were faithful would be given positions of power in these pagan kingdoms, right? We know about some of these guys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We know about them. Of course, Esther. Esther becomes the queen in a pagan country. She wasn't even rightfully an heir. She had to keep her Jewish descent silent, but yet you can see the hand of God all over her in that because nothing happens on accident. And at the end of the 70-year reign, they're given an opportunity to return home by King Cyrus. He says, you know what? You can go back. He, his, God softened his heart is what it says. But how did he do it? Because in the book of Isaiah, 150 years prior to his birth, it was prophesied that Cyrus would be the guy that sends them back to rebuild the temple. That would get my attention. 
So he sees that there. So they estimate that between two and three million were originally exiled, but with Zerubbabel, 50,000 of them go back, and they get the temple rebuilt. Takes some time. There was a lot of headaches, but they finally get going. Here we are 15 years after Ezra, 100 years after the first group returned to Jerusalem. So there's a gap of time here. Ezra goes back. They're going to service the temple. I think it was about a 70, 80-year span there, somewhere in that, that ballpark. And they are there to do the service of the temple. We're about 15 years after that when we get to Nehemiah. Okay, The wall of the city of Jerusalem is in complete rubble. They didn't clear it away. They just tore it down. The problem with that is they had no way to protect themselves. The temple was built. They tried to rebuild them. But they failed. I mean, they attempted to rebuild the wall at different times, but they couldn't get it done. It needed somewhat of an organized uh, effort. And they keep getting stopped by their enemies, by the enemies of God. There were all these different things that kept coming against them. But they're trying to build this wall because they want to keep the bad people out. All the wall does is allows you control. It's like the lock on your door, right? We don't lock our doors during the day. We lock them at night. Why? Because during the day, we're awake to see who wants to get in and who doesn't. At night, they invite themselves in. So we're going to jump into the book of Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to go through all of this. Again, it's going to take about probably two weeks, I think, to get through the book of Nehemiah. And then we're going to end this series with one overview of everything, bringing it all home and landing this airplane after a year. And I'm excited to finally do that. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of that guy, Hakaliah. If I could do Hebrew real well, that would sound a lot cooler. Hak Eliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came to the, with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Here we are immediately introduced to a guy named Nehemiah, right? We haven't seen him before. Nehemiah's name actually means Yahweh has comforted, okay? It's the month of Chislev, which is the ninth month, our November, December range. Remember, they go on a 30-day uh, lunar calendar, a little different than what we do. And so the 20th year here is is talking about would be 445 B.C., right in that range. Argument a few years here or there, but right in that range. Based on that. Now, where is he? He's in Sushan. We just read all about that, right? With Ezra, with Esther, and here we are. He's in the same spot. And this is only a few years later. I mean, this is just, it's not that long. It's the capital city of the Persian where they set up basically their dynasty. Your Bible may say Susa, same thing, doesn't matter, just different pronunciation. And they're living in the citadel. Now, the citadel is a fortified palace. And with Nehemiah being there, that tells us that he is somebody important. Because you don't just live in the palace with no no reason, okay? He is a servant of the king in some capacity, which we're going to find out what he is here in a moment. But this is where the king lived. Now, Hanani, which, which means Yahweh has been gracious, is there as well. And comes to Nehemiah and tells him that there are a lot of problems back in Jerusalem. Because there is no wall around the city to protect them. Now, Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. Think about that. He was born in exile. He's never been there. He doesn't know what Jerusalem looks like. He doesn't have any idea if there's a good kosher deli to go to. He doesn't know anything because he's never been there. But he knows that this is important. This is the land that God had given them. Now, another thing about this that is is quite interesting is not only does he not know or never have been there, but he doesn't know these people that are there. 
Okay? Keep that in mind as we go forward. So why does he care about them? And why does he care about what's going on in Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem is everything to an Israelite. Everything. This is their land. This is the land given to them by God as the place which God chose to dwell. You see this in Psalm 137, starting in verse 5. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. And if I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. This was the heart of every Jewish person and really still is to this day. Even those that don't believe in God, they know that this is their land. They know this is where they were and they love Jerusalem and as well they should. So another thing when you talk about this wall is this was a sense of pride because you were not a city until you had this wall, this wall of protection that was there to keep the bad guys out and the good guys in. Because you would have, it's, it's like driving down uh, down the west here and you go on that little thing where they make you go 45 miles an hour for about six seconds and then you get to go back to normal speed limits what's the point well there's a little unincorporated town that has 37 people in it or whatever the number is without a wall that's how jerusalem is looked upon you blinked you missed it it's nothing this is a big deal for them and therefore since this is the place in which god dwells and is given to them he deserves to be the most magnificent city in all of the land All right, let's go to Nehemiah 1 and verse 4. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servants, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded for your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though some of you were cast out of the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen us dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now think about this for a minute. He immediately, after getting this news from Hanani, or however you want to say his name, immediately begins to weep and to pray for a city he's never been in and a people he's never met. should be no different for us. We should pray for Jerusalem every single day. When we're going to prayer about the different things and the desires of our heart, these are God's people. That's never changed. That they, they come to the same saving knowledge of Jesus that we did. But he was fasting, was praying, and he talks about it, and he's going through a history that you are there, that if you keep, you keep your covenant, you keep your promises, it's us that failed. We didn't do our end. You told Moses that if we'll do this, then you will do this. And we didn't do it, and I know it. The children of Israel sinned. I have sinned. My father have sinned. We've not kept the commandments. We've not kept the statutes. We've not kept the ordinances. We failed. But you said that if you return to me, then I will continue and keep you as a nation. What does he always do? He keeps a remnant. 
We've seen this. That's what Esther was doing. That's what Ezra was doing. There's always this remnant of people that God has kept, even when Ezra is crying out and saying, well, you deserve to wipe us off the earth. We don't deserve to be here because we've continually failed you. Yet, you've been faithful to your promise. So he is just in this deep prayer. This is the first of 12 prayers that Nehemiah is going to pray. He alludes to several different parts of the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey His voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there He will bring you. I mean, here we got, again, the promise of God. Who scattered them? God scattered them. It was judgment. Who brings them back together? God does. We've seen it in our own lifetime. There's a reason that Jerusalem is once again inhabited by the Jewish people. Because the hand of God was upon them. So this time of mourning that, that Nehemiah is going through is, is somewhere around the range of four months. In the, it's prior to the events of the next chapter, obviously, but it's going to go into this. He's crying out to God. He asks God to grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who is this man? It is King Artaxerxes. It's the son of the king that we just read about in Esther, who was Xerxes or Ahasuerus. Artaxerxes reigned from 464 to 424 B.C. And he says that I was the king's cupbearer. When you are the king's cupbearer, you typically are in a position where you would not refer to the king as this man. Right? Because if you do not show the right amount of uh, respect, or if the king's just having a bad day, you're a dead man. But he is crying out to the king of kings here. And in the stance of God, he's just another man. He's asking for favor in the eyes of this. He is simply a mere man. Now, a cupbearer would be a confidant to the king and would have great influence because the king would put his life in the hand of that cupbearer. It's literally off the stuff you see in the movies where, you know, they take the drink of the wine prior to that. They taste the food prior to that. And if, if you die, then the king knows, oh, that's not good. We shouldn't, uh, shouldn't drink that, shouldn't eat that, whatever. Another thing about the cupbearer is he would often hold on to the signet ring of the king. He would hold it. Now, he didn't have authority to use it, but he would hold it for him, which means that you're putting him in a position in which if he wanted to, he could take advantage of that situation and maybe make something happen. But here we got, and we saw that again. We saw it with Haman had the king's signet ring, right? And then it was given to Mordecai after that. Now, there's a story about a guy named Xenophon. And it, it, this is what it says. It's a quote here. It is a well-known fact that the cupbearers, when they proffer the cup, draw off some of it with the ladle, pour it into their left hand, and swallow it down, so that if they should put poison in, they may not profit by it. I mean, this is, these are ancient writings. This is telling what the cupbearer does. Who drew the short straw to get that job, right? I mean, it's got to be a union deal, right? Or nobody's doing it. I, I, I don't know. But so he's in a position of influence. And he needs God's favor if this is going to happen, if he's going to make something happen. We'll see in Ezra chapter 
4 and verse 21, it says, Now give the command to make these men cease that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. He's trying to get this overturned. He needs to protect his people. It's dangerous for anyone to make a request of the king. Because depending on his mood, you very well could pay for that with your life. And remember, we just saw this with Esther. How did she? She was not summoned by the king, right? She stood outside. The king saw her. He tipped his golden goblet. She came in and touched the top of that. It was all respect, but she had to be called. You do not just simply approach. Let's jump into chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad? Since you are not sick, this is nothing but sorrow of heart. But I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set him a time. Now, Nisan, going back, is kind of March of April. And this is, you know, uh, 444 BC, somewhere in that range. You've got a series of events that took place. In 538 BC, Cyrus allows Jews to return to Jerusalem. In 516 BC, the temple is completed. It's rebuilt. In 458, you've got Ezra who leads his group, that 2,000 men, to go serve the, uh, the temple. And here we are in 444 that Nehemiah is going to go to Jerusalem. But look how he set this up, okay? He's bringing the wine to the king, right? Now, remember when, when uh, Mordecai was in fasting and he would not enter the king's gate. And as Esther tried to send clothes so he could come in. The reason for that is, is you went into the king with a certain countenance. In other words, keep your problems to yourself. It's not the king's problem. So this shows a bit of a comfort level, level with Nehemiah because he notices his countenance. And he says, you're not sick. This has got to be something of the heart. And it shows that the king even cared. There's a compassion there. Okay? Nehemiah is replaceable. So he sees that he's sad. Well, he'd been fasting. He's in mourning. This is an ongoing thing. And so he asks what's up. And so he tells him, it says, the city of his father's tombs were in ruin and needed to be rebuilt. They need this wall. Now, this is going to tug on the ear and on the heart of the king because ancestral burial sites were universally respected throughout the ancient Near East, especially among royalty, because these were the lines of the king. So when he throws that out there, that means something. This is where his fathers were buried. This is their land. He's presenting a case to him in his way that speaks to the king. So the king wants to know how long he'll be gone. And so they come up with a date, and he gives him permission to go. And this is all, it's all a good start, right? Things are going swimmingly so far. Let's go to verse 7. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertain to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat the Horonite 
And Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it. They were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Nehemiah, understandably so, is wanting letters that's going to give him permission to not only travel there without encumbrance, but when he gets there, he's going to need the materials to complete this wall. So this authorizes all these provisions and everything that Nehemiah is going to need. Now Asaph, you notice, was one of the, he was the keeper of the king's force. It's a Hebrew name, which gives us an idea that he is either Jewish or of some sort of lineage of Jewish descent. That does not make him a good guy, and that does not make him in favor of this, but he's along those lines, and he's got a very important position. Now, there is an obvious gap of time between the time that Nehemiah gets, makes the request and he actually gets to Jerusalem, and we don't know for sure how long it took. We know with Ezra, it took four months to make that trip because Persia is clear on the other side. It's in the, you know, they didn't have Uber or anything. They could just jump in the car and go. Josephus claims that it take, took him five years to get there. Might have. But that seems awfully long. Now, again, Josephus is just a, a Jewish historian. That doesn't mean that this is not a thus saith the Lord thing. A lot of good stuff in there, stuff we can pull from. doesn't always make him right. But these two guys are not happy about Sanballat and Tobiah. Now, Sanballat means sin has given life. Now, don't think sin like you did something wrong. Sin was the name of the moon god. Okay? He's a chief political opponent to Nehemiah. And you're going to see him run in with this guy several times here. He's essentially the governor over Samaria. Now, Tobiah, his name happens to mean Yahweh is good. It's interesting. Now, some speculate that he was what they call a Yahwist Jew. It, which that is, is somebody that has respect for Yahweh, but doesn't observe all the laws. So he's either of Jewish lineage, he may have been somewhat of a proselyte Jew, but the bottom line is he is not a full observer of all of that. And so when they're there, they're, and these guys will celebrate four out of the seven feasts. There are seven feasts, we'll get into those in a few weeks, but they'll celebrate four of them, but not all of them. So they kind of do their own thing. But you see these papers that are given to him, giving him permission to do this. We see this again, this continued thing. Remember, Ezra didn't take the he did not seek the armies of the, to follow with him. He didn't seek protection because he said that God was on him. What does uh, Nehemiah keep saying? He said, the king granted me. He gave me this and all of that. But it's not based off of how good the king is. It says that according to the good hand of my God upon me. It's the favor that he has with the king that has obviously been granted by God. So this is, again, we're watching the hand of God. You know, the sovereignty, if you will, is, is over all of this. So let's jump into verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem, and I was there for three days. Then I arose in the night, and I, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Nor was there any animal with me except the one in which I rode. And I went out by night through the, valley, uh, through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and his gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went to the fountain gate into the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal under me to pass, so I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or others who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also the king's words that he had spoken to me. 
So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Now, there's some interesting stuff here. He gets up in the night and he goes, but he says, I've told nobody what we're here to do. He just went. He's got the papers from the king. The king knows what he's going to do. But these guys that are with him, they don't know. Nehemiah's got a plan. What's he doing? He's getting up and he's observing everything that they're about to face. You know, one of the problems in the faith movement is that we quit using our brain. I say we very loosely here. But I mean, I've literally met people that they're just going to float into somewhere and just completely trust God. As if God never planned anything or used planning. I mean, there's a time in which we're just strictly led by the Spirit. But my goodness, here's Nehemiah in the middle of the night, jumps on his horse and is riding around the city so he can see what they're up against, so he can make a strategy. Now, he'd heard about the destruction, but he needed to see it for himself. So nobody knows what he's up to. When he returns, he tells them, this is what we're here to do. We're going to rebuild this wall. We've got to. That way the city will no longer be a reproach. Now that's strong words, especially in the Hebrew. Because that doesn't mean like less than others. That means a wasted space. This is the city of God. As I said, cities without walls will look like we look at these little towns that we drive by. You know, they're, they're, they're dry. We live in flyover country, right? There's nothing worth landing here. You know, they joke around, the birds fly upside down over this area. I'm not going to finish that joke. If you don't know what that means, see me after service. I'll explain. But this was the land that God had given them, and the city in which God resides, His temple, where He was. And so the, the fact of that, that they just had the temple built, is not good enough for Nehemiah. It's time to build the wall. Now, Sanballat and Tobiah, we know, and they're against it, obviously, but then there's a third guy that throws up, a guy named Geshem, and they show up and they mock them. Now, what's interesting is, is when you look at this, these three represent the contempt of the nation surrounding Jerusalem and the nation of Judah on all three sides, because Samaria, which is where Sanballat is from, it's to the north. Did I make, get a map for this by chance, big guy? I may not have. I didn't. Okay. It's, it's show and tell time here, folks. Up to the north. You've got Ammon that's off to the east. And then you've got Arabia, which is where Geshem is from, to the south. What's on the west? Water. Right? It's the Mediterranean Sea. So you've got them being, again, these are symbolic of all the nations around them causing them problem. Has that changed today? Nope. It hasn't. So they accuse him of rebelling against the king. Because remember, Artaxerxes, same king, had stopped the rebuilding of the city once. He'd already told him, no, you're not going to do this. However, this time he is given his blessing. And what's interesting is that they are doing the very thing that they are accusing Nehemiah of doing. Because he showed them the paper that shows that he has the king's blessing. But they're accusing him of rebelling against the king. But if you're getting against them, then you're rebelling against the king. You guys see how that works? Now, Nehemiah's response wasn't that we will be successful because the king has given them per us permission. He doesn't say, you need to just leave us alone because the king has said this is okay. He said, God will prosper us in what we do. They're there by God. 
Now, in chapter 3, for the sake of time, we're going to kind of move on here, but they get started, and it lists all the people that are involved in helping build it, and it also lists those who, have been, who refused to help build it. How'd you like to make that list? Your name's in the Bible forever. Congratulations. That's not the way you want to make it in, right? You want to be the guy that everybody's like, yeah, I want to be like him. Not this case. But they start in the northeast corner and move around the city counterclockwise, okay? For you guys, counterclockwise, okay? Left to right. But they, verses 1 through 5 is they're building the north wall. Verses 6 through 13, they're building the west wall. Verses 14 and 50, the south wall, and the east wall in verses 16 through 31. So you kind of know how that is going on. Now the eastern stretch of the north wall is verse 32. And the description here centers on the ten gates of the city. And I think I've got a map of this one. I think I, I put one up. Okay, good. Let's go back real quick, because you can see the names. The Sheep Gate, Fish Gate, Jeshon or the Old Gate, the Valley Gate, Dung Gate, Fountain Gate, Water Gate, Horse Gate, East Gate, the Inspection Gate. These are not just clever names. Those are functional uses of those gates. The Dung Gate is where they hauled the dung out, right? The water, the horse, I think you guys can figure it out. It, it's significant. So when we go to this, go ahead and go to the map. You can see, and I know it's small, but here's where all of this is going, and they work their way around, okay? So you can kind of see it, kind of see it. I should have blown that up a little bit, but you can kind of see it in those different gates there. Um, we'll put that up on Facebook so you guys can have a copy of that so you can actually read it. Fair enough. All right, let's jump into chapter 4 and verse 1. But it so happened, remember, they're just it's talking about building the wall and the direction they're going, okay, in, in chapter 3. But it so happened when Sanballat heard that the, we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. They're building the wall and they're immediately getting backlash. Now you see this hatred for them. Pure hate, right? What are these feeble Jews doing? It says that he was furious and that he was very indignant. And it was mocked. He mocked them. This isn't just your typical, you know, junior high, you're stupid. No, you're stupid. It's kind of like our uh, presidential debates were, right? But, but it is, it's deeper than that because, I mean, it's just this hatred. This is not just, you know, calling names. This is really getting, you know, getting into them. What will these feeble Jews do? He's looking down upon them. Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? They're already offering sacrifices. Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of the rubbish, the stones that are burnt? What are they talking about? It's the time when the whole thing was destroyed. They knocked it down. They burned it. And it's all still there. So this isn't a slight dislike of these people. It is absolutely pure hatred. And you see Tobias' words here. He's like, even if a fox goes on, they don't know what they're doing. The whole thing's going to cave in. Verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall. And the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. 
Now, there's no name on this prayer, but it's assumed that it's Nehemiah. He's kind of the central character here. It's certainly not Tobiah or Sanballat, in case you were confused. Now, he doesn't try to argue with these guys. He doesn't try to tell them how they're not feeble. He doesn't try to tell them, like, no, we have permission from the king. He just, what's he immediately do? In the face of the persecution that he's getting, he immediately turns to God in prayer. God, you told me to come. I'm here. You take care of it. If God calls, he will provide. It's, it's, it's that same concept all the way through. He turns it over to God. And that should be a testament to all of us. When things get rough and we're following what God tells us to do, don't try to figure it out. Go to God in prayer. Verse 7. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. And because of them, we set watch again against them day and night. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. And there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversary said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near, near them came that they told us ten times for whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the peoples, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Now these enemies are from all sides, right? They'd had a navy, they'd have come from, the, from the, the other side too, on the water. But they're getting opposition from every direction. And these people are getting mad because they are making progress. They don't like it. They probably didn't believe that it could even be completed. They didn't think they could get it done. Look at the words to buy. If a fox jumps on that thing, it'll knock it down. Now the wall's about halfway where it should be. It's half as high, and I don't know exactly how tall it is, but it's only halfway there. Now, ironically here, it's the wall that is meant to protect them is the very reason in which they're being threatened from all sides, is that something is being put in place, and they don't like this. Now, none of this mattered to Nehemiah. He didn't care. What did he do? He prayed. So, after praying, they sent people out. They're going to keep watch day and night. You're going to be here. They kept them under the wall. They were on top of the wall. They kept their swords, their bows, everything else that they would need. But it's going to happen because day and night is a long time. People are going to begin to wear out, right? We're human. It happens. This is a big task that he's asking. On top of that, they say that there's so much rubbish that they can't even get the wall built. Now, as I said, this is the rubbish that was from the prior destruction. It's still there. So not only are they having to haul this stuff off, but now they're going to have to build a new one. And they're just running out of gas. And these people are threatening them. It's not like they can just go to sleep or walk away. They, they have no choice here. Surprise attacks are on the horizon. It's going to come. So Nehemiah sets up more guards, and he gives them more weapons. And his perspective is what's incredible here, because he knows that God told him to be here. And he says, do not be afraid. Remember the Lord. Fight for your brothers. Three things. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord and fight for your brothers. That's why we're here. That's what we're going to do. He's reminding them that the reason they are there is because God told them to do this. And that God's got this. He's got this. Let's jump to verse 15. We're almost done. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing. That all of us returned to the wall. 
everyone to his work. So it was from the time, that time on that half my servants worked at construction, while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Now I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. And at the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servants stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night in a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. Now, here's what's interesting about this whole passage here. You've got all this hoopla coming up about these guys are going after Jerusalem from all sides because this wall is getting built. They're going to take them out. This is going to happen. And it doesn't talk about the destruction of the enemy. It doesn't talk about this great battle that took place. It doesn't talk about anything like that. All it says, when our, and it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, so we got back to work. That's it. All of that leading up to that, and it's over like that. It's amazing what God can do. So they return to work. But here's the thing, though. They're not stupid. These guys are sharp. They, they go to work with one hand, and they're holding their weapon with the other hand. It says their sword is, on their, is girded on their side at all times. They were to build the wall and haul off the rubble and still hold the weapon. Sounds like a fun day, doesn't it? They had to be on alert at all time, and they're spread out all around. I mean, that was a big wall, right? That's getting big, and they've got it almost locked in. And so it says, if you hear the trumpet blow, they're to convene together quickly. But the bottom line on this here is that God will fight for us. That was the bottom line. He's going to fight for us. Does that mean they just sit back and watch it? No, they're prepared. But God's hand is upon them. They had to stay on alert for 24 hours a day so they didn't go home at night. That they worked until the stars came up. They were on guard till the next morning and they did it all over again. And they only changed their clothes to wash them. At least they were doing that. They didn't take the night off to sleep. They didn't do anything. They were on alert at all times for this. Getting prepared to do what God had called them to do. What a sacrifice. You know what? Here's the thing to think about. There was nothing that said that this wall had to be rebuilt, right? There was no command of God given. Did God tell Nehemiah to go build this wall? Doesn't say that he did. Could have. They were comfortable where they were. He's the king's cupbearer. He's in a good position. Why did he leave that to go to the people of God in the city of God to do the things of God? Because there's something underlying there. There's something that's in the heart of all of us when it comes to this about the things of God. There's times that we're prompted by God, but there are things that just have to be done. I'm going to leave it at that, and we'll pick that up next week.